Well, I have a strange taste in books. If you go into my office and you start to, to look at the books on my shelf, you'll, you'll see some strange topics, some strange subjects that I read about. While most of you, normal people, will take a, a novel or a biography about a celebrity on a trip, I read books about streets. Now, not all of the books that I read are about streets, and some aren't even that strange, but I did just finish a book about streets. It's a very strange, very interesting topic. And the idea of the book that I just finished, which is titled The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power, the idea behind this book is that where you live, even the fact that you have house numbers tells a lot about who you are, because there are many people in the world who there's no way to trace them. There's no way to to say, here's where I live, other than turn left at the cow pasture. And in this book, the author, Deidre Mask, talks about how many places don't have street names or addresses, and she gives the reasons for it. In some places, it's due to a long history of colonialism. In others, the places are too poor or too small for the government to act. But in the last chapter, Mask, the author, discusses a problem that most of us don't even realize exists, the address box on applications for jobs. And think about it. When someone goes to a place of employment and they they fill out a job application, on there it lists your address. Why? We do all of our messaging through phone and email now, don't we? Some, some employers that are listed in this book said that they put the address on there to make sure that they can track someone or to see that they've had a, a living history in the area, but what happens to someone who has no address, no place of residence? And Mask talks about a possible solution for this in England, her hometown, her own country. One very successful architect in England proposed to let homeless people use the addresses of empty homes, not to occupy them, but to rather just use the number, the street address. And so the plan was, is if all of these empty homes could be used as addresses for people with no address, they could just have their mail forwarded to their shelter where they lived. It's a big project. What this architect was doing is attempting in his own way, with his own abilities, to give people hope. to to give people something that they can look forward to, to give them a better tomorrow than they have today. And the fact is, there's a difference between having a shelter and having a home, and there is even a difference between having a home and having an address. A home offers protection, but an address literally puts someone on the map. The root of the architect's plan is to give hope. It's a noble cause. As many of the, the, the solutions to the problem of homelessness are. See, hope is what drives us. Hope is what motivates us to get out of bed when we know that the day is going to be difficult. Hope is what pushes us to keep going. Hope in something better. Hope that today may not be better than yesterday, but tomorrow will be. But what happens when hope is lost? What happens to a person when everyone has turned their backs on them? What happens to the person on the fringes of society, the unwanted, the unloved? What happens to them? It's a big question. It's a big question. And a lot of people in the world are talking about that today. There seems to be, if you've noticed, a lot of talk about how to make the world a better place. 
Much of it comes from a worldview that doesn't appreciate the gospel and that doesn't have the gospel at its center. But the truth of the matter is, I'm all for people helping other people. My motivation may be different from my neighbor's, but it's a good thing to help your neighbor, isn't it? It's encouraging to even to see this. And the idea behind this is God's common grace, not salvific grace, not grace that saves, but grace that God gives to everyone. It rains on the just and the unjust. And so when we see people doing good deeds, when we see people helping each other, whether they're a Christian or not, it's an effect of God's common grace on the world today. So even those people who are not believers are giving us glimpses of the gospel giving us glimpses of of doing good for other people, of serving other people, of sacrificially loving others. It's a taste, it's a glimpse of the gospel. But even with all the programs, ministries, social safety nets, there are many people right now, maybe even some of us here today, who feel completely hopeless. For some, it's the things that they've done to hurt others, And the guilt keeps piling up. Uh, uh, Still others have been victims themselves. The truth is it's safe to say that I think every single one of us here needs a good, healthy dose of hope. The passage that we just read today, it's a strange passage to talk about hope. But the truth is there is a thread of hopefulness littered through this passage that it is there over and over and over again in the midst of a situation that seemed completely hopeless. There's hope. Hope in something better. There is hope for the abused just as much as there is hope for the wealthy. There is hope for the unloved and the outcast just as much as there is for the loved. I want you to pretend for a moment that you know nothing about the story of Abram beyond chapter 15 of Genesis. You don't know anything about Isaac, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't know anything about Abimelech. Suppose you know nothing about this and all that you've read is Genesis 1 through 15. What do you think Abram would do next? Abram's been called by God and rescued by God after lying about his wife. He rescued Lot after, uh, and defeating the invading kings. He witnessed a theophany, a visible manifestation of God in the flame passing between the split animals. Abram was the recipient of God's unilateral promise to him. He promised that he would have many descendants, more numerous than the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. A lot has happened to Abram up to this point, so what would you do next? My first response is to say, well, in my heart, I would stand and say, well, I am no longer going to defame the name of God. I will no longer do bad things. I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to worship him rightly. But you know that's not going to happen. It makes sense to our minds that if we endured what Abram did, we would be changed people. We would not never fall into these terrible sins anymore. What happens in chapter 16? God speaks to Abram over and over again. God gives Abram a covenant. God gives Abram a promise. God gives Abram the promise of a descendant and land and and property, everything that anyone could ever want. And Abram continues to fail God. 
Abram continues to make horrible choices. And, and, and unfortunately, these horrible choices affect these two women in the passage today, Hagar and Sarai. And the truth is, is that these bad choices that Abram and Sarai make have effects and impact still to this day. The first thing that we see is found in verses 1 and 2, Sarai's suggestion. So the, the promise has been made to Abram. Years has now passed. And Sarai was old. She's in her 70s, well past the age for a woman to conceive and have a child. And in the ancient culture, as it is still in some cultures today, not being able to conceive and have a child is seen as some kind of a curse. Sarai up to this point has been flat out mistreated by Abram. When they went into Egypt, Abram failed to protect his wife. He failed to do what a husband should do, to lay down his wife for his life. And instead, he lied about who Sarai was, and it got Sarai into a bad problem where she was probably part of the Pharaoh's harem. Not a good place. And so Sarai, at this point, she knows that God promised Abram that he would have an heir. In Genesis 15, God promised Abram directly that his heir would not be a servant, but it would rather be his very own son. So imagine being Sarai. She's beautiful, but she's 75. Most women who are 75 cannot conceive a child. And she knows that. And so she's sitting there thinking, this is, this is biologically not going to happen. There is no way that this could happen. Add to that, there's been more than 15 years between Abram's initial call to now. So Sarai does exactly what we do. She decides that she's going to help God to ensure that his promise is fulfilled. <laughs> First glance, we look at that and we think, oh my goodness. How foolish is that? How, how foolish is it to say, well, we're going to help God? But I'm convinced we do it all the time. I, I do. I, I know what God says, and I want to help him along. Most of the time, it's because I want things done faster. I'm not ready to wait on God. I'm not ready to wait on those promises that have been promised to me. When we first adopted our sons, and as they were in there, you know, one, two, three years old, the hardest thing for me was not changing diapers. The hardest thing for me was not feeding and smelling that nasty food and, and all that baby stuff. I, that, that wasn't the hardest part for me. The hardest part for me was the fact that little children have no understanding of time. They're screaming because they want something right now and, and saying, well, just wait a minute. Doesn't work. Saying, look at me, I'm getting up and I'm walking to get what you want. Doesn't work. They want it and they want it now. And they couldn't recognize that I was trying to help them. This is kind of what's happening with Sarai, isn't it? God made a promise and she hasn't seen any of it come true, so she feels like she needs to do something to make it work. She's impatient and whatever trust that she had left is beginning to disappear. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. 
And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I should obtain or shall obtain children by her. Hagar was probably property that was given to Abram while he was in Egypt in chapter 12. What Sarai was proposing was that that Hagar would become a surrogate for, for them, that Sarai couldn't have a child naturally, supposedly, and so she was saying, well, Hagar looks young. She, she, she looks like she's fertile. She has no issues. Well, let's, let's make it happen. The child would still belong to Abram and Sarai, and it would not belong to Hagar. Now, this still happens for various reasons, and this passage is not a commentary on surrogacy. The entire passage uh, here shows the incredible damage, though, that happens when we disobey or distrust God. Sarai was trying to figure out some way to to make this happen on her schedule. So she says something that I can't imagine any loving wife saying to their husband. Take my servant and have a child with her. Then the promise will be fulfilled. Sarai thought she was the problem. She thought that her inability to have a child was larger than the power of God to do what he says. So Sarai does what many Christians think. Maybe you've said this. Well, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. And frankly, that's unbiblical at its core. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's who God helped. That's who Christ came to. Christ came to those not who are well, but to the sick. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Christ came for those who cannot help themselves. God is God all by himself. He doesn't need our help. And in fact, trying to help God be God is idolatry. It shows that we don't value or trust his word, and this is exactly what Sarai was doing. Now again, pretend for a moment that you don't know anything about this passage. At this point, we would all hope that Abram would man up, be the husband, be the protector, be the man of God that God has called him to be, and he would defend his wife, and he would say, honey, I'm sorry, that is a horrible idea, not gonna happen. That's foolishness, that's sin. That goes against God's promises. We're not trusting in what God has said. Nope. Abram fails again. And in fact, he's actually recorded as saying nothing. In Genesis 3, Eve took the fruit, ate it, and gave it to Adam, who stood by as Satan lied to his wife. He didn't stop what was happening. He didn't speak up. He didn't say, I'm responsible for leading my family, just the two of us. We're not doing this. And he didn't. He didn't speak at all. Abram similarly did not speak at all. Abram is silent here. All that's said is that Sarai gave Hagar to him and he committed the act and Hagar got pregnant. Look at these verses, verses three and four. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. 
And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. It's been about 15 years since that initial promise to Abram was made. Abram and Sarai had grown discouraged. That clouded their thinking. Abram was the spiritual and physical head of his family. Listen, the man who had enough courage to take 318 men and charge at these invading armies, probably the most courageous thing anyone could think of, could not say to his wife, no, we're standing on the promise of God. Where God promises joy in the midst of trial, helping God along only brings chaos, and this is our story. Jacob had to live in an exile for 25 years because he thought he had to help God out to get his father's blessing. Moses had to tend sheep for years in the desert after he tried to help God out by murdering an Egyptian. This is kind of a character study here. Put yourself in Sarai's position now. Chances are you would have done something drastic too. It may not have been what she did, but when you're helpless and hope has run out, you will do just about anything to get you where you want to be. In many ways, we talk about hope as a great motivator to do wonderful things, but what happens when someone thinks that all hope is lost? You cannot reason with someone who has lost all hope any more than you can with someone of a different language. Sarai, by her choice to give Hagar to Abram and Abram's actions, show that they had lost hope in the promise that God has made. And throughout history, we've seen this. We've seen what happens when people feel like they have no hope. They do things that they would never do otherwise. When you take away someone's hope, don't be surprised at how they respond. So Sarai did something that we rightly view as despicable, something that no loving, right-thinking wife would do. Her hopelessness brought her to the point where she would willingly give up that intimacy that belonged only to her and her husband, and she would give it away. And I don't say this to be sordid, but I think it's important because you can see the, the filth that's happening here. Some scholars believe, and ancient tradition would say, that when Abram and Hagar were together, Sarai was there with them. Hopelessness will drive someone to unthinkable depths. But Sarai really didn't want Hagar to get pregnant. Up to this point, people, including Abram and Sarai, would have only guessed at who was the one that was responsible for not being able to have children. If Hagar were to get pregnant, it would be clear that Sarai was the reason. And Hagar would be seen as more of a woman than Sarai. Look at what happens now in verses five and six. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong thing done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Agar looked at Sarai with contempt, maybe she was arrogant. After all, she's a servant, she's a slave, and now she's bearing Abram's child. Abram and Sarai used Hagar. It wasn't enough that she was a slave, now she was a tool for them to get what they wanted. 
Sarai was angry with Abram. Now, now you may look at this and you, you would say, rightly, I think Sarai should have been looking in the mirror. She's the one who proposed this. But even though she carries guilt here, Abram was the head of his house, he failed at being the spiritual leader that she needed. What's astonishing over and over in this passage to me is that how Abram can be so brave on one hand and be so weak on the other. We've heard stories of soldiers, uh, uh, of these wonderful soldiers in battle where they're charging at the, at the enemy's side and, and bullets are flying past and they're risking their life to, to save their comrades. And then they come home and cheat on their wives. And they leave their families. You think, how can you be so brave and yet such a weak person at the same time? Such bravery and weakness in the same fallen person. And, and even more, look at verse 6. Abram doesn't even have enough respect for the woman that he just impregnated to use her own name. As one pastor commentator said that they viewed Hagar as nothing more than a soulless baby machine. They mistreated her. They abused her. Instead of treating Hagar fairly at, fairly at this point, so it keeps compounding, doesn't it? It keeps getting worse and worse. Instead of treating her fairly, Abram hid behind the established set of law at the time. It's the Code of Hammurabi. This was a set of 282 rules regarding all sorts of things, property, commerce, and marriage. And he was hiding behind what was the accepted secular norm of the day rather than doing what's right. I'll read you what the law he was following says. Law 146, if a man takes a wife and she gives this man to a maidservant as a wife and she bear him children, and then this maid assume equality with the wife because she has borne him children, her master shall not sell her for money, but he may keep her as a slave, reckoning her among the maidservants. Abram was saying to Sarai, we're not going to sell her, but we're going to demote her. I'm going to be as blunt as I can say, this is abuse by any standard. Now, how could this happen? Abram and Sarai distrusted God. It, isn't that the root of our sin? A marriage falls apart because one of the spouses decides to have whatever needs, whatever they may be, met by someone or something else. They ignore or reject God's command that marriage is a commitment for life. Couples bicker over responsibility or money or anything else. It's that one or both have forgotten that joy, not happiness, is promised when we accept and obey God's commands. When that doesn't happen, this is what we're left with. A disgusting state of affairs. So what does Hagar do? She does what any of us would do. She runs. She gets out. She's been enslaved, she's been given to Abram and Sarai, and then she was used as a soulless baby machine. And so she ran back to her people in Egypt. But she was stopped close to her home in Egypt in the desert of Shur. But then she meets someone. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. This is no mere angel. While there are some differences in opinions on who this was, I believe this was Jesus. I believe that she met Jesus in the wilderness. The title angel of the Lord combined with the, what he was saying to Hagar makes me think that it was Jesus. Now would I break fellowship over this? No. 
Am I going to argue about this? No, it's not an essential issue, and it should be left to the realm of debate, not division. So whether it was Jesus on that road or an angel bringing the message, it was still God speaking. Look at verses 8 through 10. And he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel says, or Jesus says, go back to Sarai. After all that Hagar has been through, after all the abuse that she suffered, she has to go back? They didn't have GPSs back then. They didn't have satellites. I've often wondered how easy it might have been to just disappear in society. No one knows. Go to a few towns over and you just kind of disappear, slip in. But now she's being told to go back home, to go back to the people who abused her. What would you have said? I would never tell a victim to return to their abuser, but God has a plan here. Look at the promise made in verse 11 and 12. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. God has plans for Hagar's son. Her son would be named Ishmael, which means God, God has heard. Now, can you imagine the comfort? She's running away from an abusive situation. She's getting out. She's leaving. And then she's encountering either Jesus or uh, uh, an angel. And they give her these words of comfort. God has heard. Can you imagine the comfort that would have come to Hagar knowing that not only did God know her situation, but now God cares for her and her son. Her situation no longer defines her. She is defined by who she is in God. Now, I doubt that any of us have experienced anything like this. I hope not. But we all have difficulties. We've all been mistreated or abused. We've all suffered at the hands of others. What's more comforting in those situations than God saying, listen, I hear you. I know. I'm with you. What's more comforting than knowing that God has reached his hand out to protect us? This is what Hagar received. The horrific events are no less horrific, but they still serve a purpose. Hagar's son Ishmael would be the father to the Arabic people. God has plans for this little boy. The strange description, though, in verse 12 is not something that would comfort most pregnant mothers. I don't advise you to walk up to a pregnant woman and tell her that her child will be a donkey. That's not a way to win friendships. But what Jesus or the angel was saying to Hagar here was that her son will be a desert dweller, that he will have many enemies, and that he will be an enemy to people. It takes no imagination to figure out where this goes. 
More than half of the entire world claims one of two religions, either Islam or Christianity. Both religions trace their heritage to Genesis chapter 16. Both. Whereas Christians and Jews see the promise of God fulfilled through Isaac, we see, or Muslims see, that it's traced back through Ishmael. You see a problem that could happen here. Christians and Jews see this way, Muslims see this way. This is where it splits. Now consider something in this. When we sin, when we commit acts of rebellion against God, we often think that it's just us that it affects. So, so when you go and you deal with your anger and you deal with the, the stuff, the bitterness inside, you think, well, this only affects me. When you go and close the curtains and you do those things, you think, well, it only affects me. It does not. It extends into your spouse and your children and to your church family, to your friends. But, but think about what happens with Abram. This doesn't just stop with them two. This affects the entire world even today. Abram and Sarai's sin and abuse of Hagar has led, we could trace it, has led to the problems that we see right now between Muslims and Christians and Jews in the rest of the world. In their failed attempt to help God fulfill his promise, Abram and Sarai created a future where millions would die in armed conflict. The sin is still felt today. The truth is our sins probably won't be this big, won't be as far-reaching, but our sin affects others. It affects others outside of ourselves. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never given your life to him in repentance and faith, this is the danger that you find yourself in. Your sin has come to define who you are. Yes, all people, every creature or every human creature is created in the image of God. We are all image bearers, which means we have value and worth. From the, the most godly Christian to the most ardent atheist, every single person is created with worth and value. But if you're not a believer, you may not know this, your sin has distorted that truth. You've ignored your own worth and you've instead traded it for some sort of momentary satisfaction. And the Bible says that what you've earned for yourself is death. What this means is that your sin will cause you to die, not just a physical death, but an eternal death too. Think of it as, as eternal punishment, eternal suffering for sinning against an eternally perfect God. That's what we all deserve. That's justice. So many people are like Abram. They claim that they are mostly good, but mostly good does nothing good for us. Abram couldn't save himself from the guilty verdict, and neither can we. I hope you saw how God comforted Hagar in her most difficult time. The promise through Jesus is the same for you. If you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, you too can receive this same comfort and the same joy. It's comfort knowing that your guilty verdict has been lifted and you have a promised future, a future full of joy and hope. This is our hope. Christians read the New Testament or the Old Testament as pointing us to Christ, not in the Messiah that we're waiting for, but the Messiah that's already come. Our hope is, the, is in the one who has come to defeat death and the grave. Our hope is in the one who gives us joy and comfort in the midst of the worst moments in our lives. 
And that's where Hagar was. I can't imagine many things that are worse than what she's experienced. And now in the middle of hearing that she was not forgotten by God, she's told that her son Ishmael would have a difficult life. But God will still bless him. It's hope. She was hopeless, and God's given her hope. God sees her suffering and gives her hope. She's been given a future that can only come from God stepping into our story. Yes, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Yes, God is omnipotent. He knows everything. But what I'm saying is that we often miss everything that God does in our lives. We miss those little things and sometimes the big things. And I can tell you this, most of us don't even think. We don't give God a second thought until we are desperate. We go about our lives, and as long as things are good, we're good. Yeah, we pray before we eat. Yeah, we come to church on Sunday. Yeah, we do those religious things that we've been trained to do that we feel guilty if we don't. You know, when you fall asleep halfway through your prayer at night. But we really only boldly approach God when we are desperate. When we have nowhere to turn. But when an Hagar moment comes, one of those moments where we're stuck, we run to God. Now some wonder, and I've been asked this, why over the last few decades, why there's this emphasis in so many churches on what we call gospel-centered preaching, or actually gospel-centered anything. You can just plug anything at the end. Gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered preaching. Why? Why is there such a focus on the gospel? Most of the church are already believers. Why do we need to know about this again? You're preaching the same message to us. Why? Yeah, it works for evangelism, but nah, we're believers. This is why. We are prone to wander. We're prone to seek out anything else to fill our lives other than what God has given us and prescribed for us. We fail to see that the gospel is just as relevant for us today as it was on the day that we came to know him first. Hagar needed hope and she got it when God came to her. God gave her comfort that she needed. Look at Hagar's response. She did two things. First in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing for she said truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar praised and honored God with her words. And the second thing she did was found in verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. She went back and did exactly what God told her to do. She confessed. She obeyed. Is it strange to you that the people who were called by God, who had been given everything that they needed, were the ones that kept on sinning and doing horrible things. And the one who was the victim was the one who confessed and obeyed. We'll see that in just a few chapters, this story doesn't end. Hagar again will be abused by Sarai. It's a, a really tragic story. But it's so Telling to me that the one who was victimized, the one who was abused, the one who was mistreated is the one that heard God's voice and trusted and obeyed.
And I want to leave you with a, just a few thoughts this morning first. There is no way you can read this passage or any of the rest of the scripture and come away with saying, well, God doesn't care about the oppressed or the poor or the abused or the mistreated or the marginalized. Example after example can be found in scripture that shows that God cares for those that the world despises. And this is who Hagar was. She was abused and abandoned, mistreated and marginalized. This was her story. Even today we hear stories of of people who've been trafficked, cheated on, or abused. We know examples of people who've been groomed and treated as nothing more than a toy to fulfill someone's sick fantasy. We know this happens. We can keep our eyes closed to it, but it happens all around us every single day. So we know people like Hagar. We also know people like Abram and Sarai. These people know better. They know the word of God. They may even be teachers or leaders in the church, but in their zeal for whatever that it is that they think that God has given to them, they run over people to get there faster. And this leads to my second point in the conclusion. God is big enough to save the Hagars, the Abrams, and the Sarais. You may be beaten down thinking that all hope has been lost and that you have nothing left to live for and certainly nothing to offer anyone else. You resonate with Hagar here. You need a meeting with Jesus right now. You need that wilderness moment. It happened to Hagar and it could happen with you. Hagar's problems didn't go away when she met Jesus, but she gained a perspective that she didn't have before. She did what we would all do in a situation like her. She ran, but then after meeting God, she went back and she was blessed. Maybe you're the victim, like Sarai, who's ended up victimizing someone else. Abram mistreated her, and then she mistreated Hagar. Maybe your life seems like an endless cycle of tragedy after tragedy, and there is no way that you see any way out. Yet through all of this, God still uses Sarai. He doesn't turn his back on her. The story of Sarai doesn't end with a barren womb, but rather the birth of the Messiah. Read Matthew 1, and you'll see her name listed right there. Her line is listed. Maybe you're more like Abram. You make bad choices and treat people poorly. Maybe you've abused or mistreated people, or, or maybe you've just been a weak leader, unable to do the right thing regardless of the personal cost. God never let Abram go either. And Abram was still used to accomplish his purposes. Whether you're like one of these three or, or you fall somewhere in between, you are never too far gone for God to reach out his hands and say, you are mine and you're safe and secure. No matter what you've done or not done, God's reach is long enough. Yes, sin is powerful. Yes, sin is destructive. But Jesus is stronger. Come to the one who will be merciful toward your iniquities and who will remember your sin no more. Would you pray with me?